Rumi once said, this being human is a guest house. A joy, a meanness. Invite them all in, because each has been sent as a guide from above. So, welcome. I'm Warner Rowe, and this is Guest House. Just a heads up, there is explicit language in this episode. And as a disclaimer, I am not a doctor or medical professional of any kind. None of this information is here to diagnose, treat, or cure anyone or any illness. This is just purely my observation, my personal opinion, and my own story. Please, if you are taking medication, never ever stop taking it abruptly or cold turkey, and always, always consult with your health professional. Just a brief note, this episode does contain sensitive subject matter that is not suitable for all listeners, so please proceed with discretion. Hello, and welcome back to Guest House. This is part two of a three-part series I'm doing on my experience with SSRIs. In this episode, I'll start off the first few minutes talking about a symptom that I had that was very persistent and actually the main driver of me getting on medication that I didn't talk about in the first episode. I think I was unconsciously self-censoring myself, probably because this symptom that I had was the hardest one and the biggest driver for me grabbing that pill bottle. After that, I'll talk to you about things like hibernation hormones, the little depressed Zoloft cloud commercial, if you remember in the early 2000s, and informed consent among doctors and patients, especially around psychotropic drugs. So I'm really glad you're here. And stay tuned after this for the third episode, which I hope to put out in a week from now. So, welcome to Guest House. How can I be substantial if I do not cast a shadow? I must have a dark side also if I am to be whole. Carl Jung. All right, so in hindsight, I see that I kind of self-censored myself a bit around this symptom that was pretty terrifying to me and truly the main driver of me seeking medication the second time around. The first time around, I would say it was really severe panic and anxiety and almost agoraphobia to some degree. I just didn't want to leave the house, didn't want to leave any sort of comfort. But the second time around, when I was living abroad, it was intrusive thoughts. So what are intrusive thoughts? Well, brief overview is that everyone has them, right? It could be like you're holding a baby and a thought floats through your head like, I could drop this baby on its head. Oh my gosh, why did I just think that? That's so creepy. That's an intrusive thought. Now, where they become problematic, quote unquote, for many people is when they become sticky. 
So they become persistent, become obsessive, and they kind of take over your whole mind. (laughs) And for me, that was persistently thoughts of self-harm. Now, I never had any ideation, never had any desire, never had any plans, no desire or intrigue at all in self-harm, but I had persistent thoughts of self-harm. Thoughts that were just really violently kind of cruel in nature and it totally freaked me out. I wish I knew then what I had known now, which is that it's okay. Like your brain is misfiring, but you can get through this. This doesn't mean anything negative about you. This doesn't mean you have that desire. This is just a really high, high, high period of stress and distress in your life, in your body, in your mind, and so these thoughts become sticky. We don't know exactly why for some people they become sticky and for others they don't in times of stress, but some people lose their hair when they're really stressed. Like it's it just it just varies. And of course, I'm not comparing hair to, you know, these kind of mental functions, but I hope you get the gist of what I'm saying. So, I found a book a year and a half later this book was actually published called overcoming unwanted intrusive thoughts and this was a year and a half after i had already started taking the medication for the second time because prior to that there were not many resources for this i would google incessantly which is a part of the obsession right so Intrusive thoughts kind of fall under the umbrella of, if, if you were to get a diagnosis, it would be under the umbrella of OCD because the obsession is the thoughts, like you're freaked out by the thoughts, it's all you can think about, you try to push them away but they persist and they terrify you and the compulsion is Googling. It's literally Googling 24 hours a day, what does this mean, why am I thinking this, am I okay, do I want to do this to myself? constantly seeking reassurance. So that is the compulsion part. And the biggest cure for this is CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, or exposure therapy, where you're kind of exposing yourself to the thoughts or the content matter surrounding the thoughts. So like for some people, if they're having obsessive thoughts that they're terrified of, it's going to be very graphic, but let's say hanging themselves and they're very terrified of ropes because, or belts. They don't even, they can't even look at a belt without getting a shockwave of cortisol, adrenaline, they're terrified or knives or something like that. The exposure therapy would be working with a clinician who is trained in these kind of things and and the clinician would therefore understand that you don't have these desires, right? And they're not going to kind of freak you out more. Whereas maybe like a friend or a colleague, you know, if you tell them you're having in thoughts that but you don't know that they're intrusive thoughts, you're just having these persistent thoughts, your loved ones are going to be a little freaked out. 
understandably, right? So in giving the example of the more graphic intrusive thoughts, working with someone who is trained in exposure therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy will be able to work with the individual on a level of lessening the fear around the thoughts because that's one of the biggest parts of intrusive thoughts is the total fear around these thoughts that just seemingly out of nowhere pop into your mind. But coming back to that kind of mind-body-soul connection, I heard something through the School of Life YouTube channel and they were they had a video recently um, on intrusive thoughts and so I checked it out and I didn't totally personally identify with a lot of the things that they were talking about as a cause of intrusive thoughts like they were explaining how very often intrusive thoughts are the people who are most affected by them are people that really struggle with like self-shame and guilt but one thing that they said that really resonated with me was there is a level of radical self-mistrust when you have intrusive thoughts and I was like yes that is so true like there is so much self-mistrust because the thoughts are so deeply rooted in the idea of oh my gosh, this thought popped into my head, what if I go through with it? Whatever the thought may be. Like I said, they could be, um, you know, people struggle in specific categories. Some of them are really sexual in nature. Some of them are religious in nature. Religious in nature, like, uh, I think it's called scrupulous, scrupulosity. And some of them are more violent in nature or self-harm or whatever the category is. It's rooted in radical mistrust of the self. And I was like, damn, that is so true. There's so much mistrust here of myself and of my mind. Um, And... I'm continuously learning how to rectify that. And that could be something that stemmed in childhood. The video was also talking about, you know, if you suffer with intrusive thoughts, you probably weren't loved (laughs) well enough. And I'm like, okay, maybe maybe that's true for some people, but I think that's kind of like an over-simplification or like over-dramatization. But... Again, the the main part is that it is totally a mistrust of the self and they stick, the intrusive thoughts stick repeatedly in the mind because you, you, you just believe at any moment you can do what the thought is. And, and, and people who have these intrusive thoughts are really anxious about them. They just want to they they totally want to control it so it's it's a control aspect as well or lack thereof and when you have lack of control there's a lack of trust within the self and within your environment so it's there's so many layers to it but 
I just wanted to put that in there. But the key is exposure therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and those things were extremely pivotal for me. Somehow, the antidepressant medication did get me to a place where I didn't have them anymore. Now, as soon as I started tapering my dose, what happened? (laughs) Yes, intrusive thoughts. So... It's funny how that works, right? The medication doesn't really solve anything. It just kind of keeps it under. So how do I deal with them now? And while I'm tapering, I let them be there. They just float on by as uncomfortable as it is. They just float on by. And guess what? They lose their power. They stop persisting. And it kind of takes me back to... That saying, quote, is the only way out is through. The only way to overcome it is to just go through it. And it's really hard, but the most important tool truly is knowledge. And it's truly knowing that these thoughts in whatever nature they are, whether it's violence or if they're sexual in nature or religious in nature, which is also very common among more orthodox religions, my brother experienced this. I also experienced this at one point. And the best way out is through to let them be there and know that they don't have any assigned meaning. They don't mean anything about you. They don't mean anything about anyone. They don't mean anything about anything. They are just offshoots of anxiety. And that tool is really powerful. So I'll list some things in the show notes in case anyone else is struggling with intrusive thoughts. Just know there is so much hope and so many people have been treated without medication. And in some ways, the medication worked for me. It stopped the thoughts. But it's worth repeating that when I tapered my dose, it came back very persistently. Just let that be known. And let's get started with the rest of the episode. Now that I've spoke a bit about how I've come to realize that any kind of symptom of quote-unquote mental illness is a kind of disconnect between the body, the mind, the soul, I want to talk a bit more about the research that I've come across. When I first came across all of this information a few months ago, I, I cried for a week. <laughs> um... I cried a lot because I was sad. I was heartbroken because I'd believed for a very, very long time, basically a decade of my life, all of my 20s. Started antidepressants when I was 20. I'm 30 now. And I had a two-year break in between. So for eight years of my life, I've been taking a psychotropic drug that has altered my mind in ways I don't know in ways that doctors don't know, in ways that scientists don't know, because there is so much about the brain we don't know. And that is fact. That is indisputable. In Scientific American, there was an article by Julia Calderon called The Rise of All-Purpose Antidepressants, and she noted that between 1998 and 2008, there was a 400% increase in the use of antidepressants. So... That doesn't signify that there is a depression epidemic. Uh, It actually correlates to 
the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, which is basically the Bible of psychiatry, it's where they diagnose you. You sit in an office and they kind of flip through it. Some of them have it, you know, pretty down pat, but I, when I saw a psychologist, um, she had pulled it out because she was concerned I had bipolar. But then, you know, she looked through the DSM and you know, kind of quizzed me on some of the things, and turns out I wasn't bipolar. It's through a book, literally through a book, not through a blood test, not through any quantifiable measure of science. So this correlates with the DSM. And between 1952 and 2013, uh, the diagnoses, the level of them had increased colossally. So I think it says in 1952, the DSM was 130 pages and it outlined 106 illnesses. Current version is 886 pages and includes 374 diagnoses. Are people just getting sicker? Like, are, are we like inventing more illnesses? I don't know. That's interesting, right? While there have been about six decades of study of the chemical imbalance theory, after six decades, there has never been a human study that successfully links low serotonin and depression. Even through imaging, blood and urine tests, post-mortem suicide assessments and animal research have never validated the link between neurotransmitter levels and depression. And on the contrary, more serotonin has been linked to depressive episodes. I wanted to put in a few quotes from specific doctors about the serotonin theory. Uh, a psychiatrist called David Burns, who conducted award-winning serotonin research in the 1970s, said, I spent the first several, several years of my career doing full-time research on brain serotonin metabolism, but I never saw any convincing research that any psychiatric disorder, including depression, results from a deficiency of brain serotonin. Harvard psychiatrist Joseph Glenn Mullen, clinical, he's a clinical instructor of psychiatry, said a serotonin deficiency for depression has not been found. Brown University psychiatrist Peter Kramer, author of Listing to Prozac, said, I wrote that Prozac was no more and perhaps less effective in treating major depression than prior medications. I argued that the theories of brain functioning that led to the development of Prozac must be wrong or incomplete. Avrid Carlson, Nobel Prize winner for his work on the neurotransmitter dopamine, said, we must abandon the simplistic hypotheses of there being either an abnormally high or abnormally low function of a given neurotransmitter. Psychiatrist and historian David Healy said, indeed, no abnormality of serotonin and depression has ever been demonstrated. Healy also said in the 1990s, no one knew if SSRIs raised or lowered serotonin levels. They still don't know. There was no evidence that treatment corrected anything. John Evenden, Astra Pharmaceutical Company research scientist, said in 1990, the simplistic idea of serotonin does not bear any relation to reality. I'll share the quotes about the doctors and their findings on serotonin because I think that's, 
that's what's really important and what leads to the conversation of, okay, well, how the hell and why the hell does the entire world and public think that serotonin is this happy hormone and it's a hormone that we are deficient in when we're depressed? Where does that come from? And an example too is on Instagram, like whenever you watch like funny videos or cat videos or puppy videos, almost always, it's so creepy, but constantly I'll run into it. There will be a comment that's like, oh my gosh, I just got so much serotonin from this. Or the caption will be like, here's some free serotonin for you. And it's like a really cute puppy kitty video. And it's funny because it is the general idea for the public. And that brings me to direct to consumer advertising, which is a very American thing. So direct to consumer advertising is when a pharmaceutical company is advertising on a network directly to you into your home. So we see this all the time. You probably remember back in the cable days not that long ago, maybe 10 years ago, I remember seeing the Zoloft commercials and it was this little ball, this little like cartoon drawn ball who just looked so sad, you know, and he had the cloud over his head and it would rain, this little cartoon cloud. And he was a neurotransmitter. I think he was like serotonin or something like that. I could be wrong. I have to rewatch the commercial, but hopefully you know what I'm talking about. So this is really common. I mean, Celexa, Zoloft, Prozac, Cymbalta, all these SSRI companies advertise direct to consumer. So an example here is I'll read you some of the advertisements in contrast to what I just read from the doctors and what they said about serotonin. So Cymbalta said, patients with neurotransmitter dysregulation may have an imbalance of serotonin and neuroepinephrine Cymbalta may aid in correcting the imbalance of serotonin in the brain. That was in 2004. In 2005, it said, Celexa helps to restore the brain's chemical balance by increasing the supply of a chemical messenger in the brain called serotonin. Uh, In 2014, at some time in the course of their illness, most patients and families need some explanation of what happened and why. Sometimes the explanation is as simplistic as a chemical imbalance. In 2001, president of the American Psychiatric Association said, We now know that mental illness such as depression or schizophrenia are not moral weaknesses or imagined, but real diseases caused by abnormalities of brain structure and imbalances in chemicals of the brain. Medications and other treatments can correct these imbalances. Talk therapy can directly improve brain functioning. Interesting, right? Comparing that to Nobel Prize winning doctor who said we must abandon this simplistic hypothesis of there being either an abnormally high or abnormally low function of a given neurotransmitter. Another psychiatrist said, indeed, no no abnormality of serotonin in depression has ever been demonstrated. So we see these kind of contrasting ideas and thoughts. And there were two doctors, one named Dr. Lacasse and one named Dr. Leo, and they wrote a paper in 2005 saying, these advertisements present a seductive concept. And the fact that patients are now presenting with self-described chemical imbalance shows that the advertising is having its intended effect. 
the medical marketplace is being shaped in a way that is advantageous to the pharmaceutical companies. And that is from doctors Jeffrey Lacasse and Jonathan Leo in their article called Serotonin and Depression, a disconnect between the advertisements and the scientific literature. So it's interesting, right? Actually, the United States and New Zealand are the only countries in the world that allow advertisement on television for prescription drugs. I wouldn't expect that of you, New Zealand. Us, for sure. Not you, New Zealand. Kelly Brogan in her book talks about how they court physicians, toss them copious free samples, pay consultants to speak at scientific meetings, advertise in medical journals, fund medical education, ghostwrite, and they selectively choose and redundantly submit data for publication. She says psychiatric studies funded by Big Pharma are four times more likely to be published if they report positive results. Only 18% of psychiatrists disclose their conflicts of interest when they publish data. Their studies allow for all kinds of indiscretions, such as removing people who are likely to respond to placebo before they study to strengthen the perceived data and using sedative medications with the study's medications, thereby skewing results in favor of the drug. So her, her resources for that are an article published on, it's called The Other Drug War, Big Pharma's 625 Washington Lobbyists. And her other source is Selective Publication of Antidepressant Trials and Its Influence on Apparent Efficacy, published in 2008 in the New England Medical Journal. So these things are jarring, and it's up to the individual to weigh out what they want to go with. And again, it bears repeating, I don't care what anyone does with their brain, their body, I, I don't care. You can take as many pharmaceutical drugs as you want, and if you truly feel better on them or you feel comfortable taking them, then that's fine. That is 100% totally cool. And for me, I just want all the information. And the part that's just frustrating is that none of these things were known to me before I started taking the medication. I was never told anything other than low serotonin is what it is. Chemical imbalance is what it is. And even the ambiguity of, oh, well, we don't really know, but it could be low serotonin and chemical imbalance could be genetics. Even the ambiguity of it is is frustrating in hindsight, but another piece is explaining how there's a brief moment of feeling validated when you get a diagnosis like that, when you get told by a doctor like, look, 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 this isn't your fault. Your brain is just a little bit of a mess right now because of this chemical imbalance that is most likely genetic, etc. We don't even really know why it's imbalanced, but it is, and it's not your fault, and we have a way of fixing it, and we have a way of having something that can make you feel better. There is a whole moment, a years-long moment of validation where you're just like, ah, relief. You're like, okay, so this isn't me. This is something wrong with me, something wrong with my brain, and I can fix it. And I think that works for most people probably. It worked for me for almost 10 years until it didn't. It feels validating until it doesn't. For me, when I just felt completely underwater 
after almost a decade and felt like I wasn't moving forward towards my goals, towards the essence of who I am or who I longed to be, that kind of woke me up. The analogy I made in the last episode about the blanket, about an SSRI being this kind of like weighted or even wet blanket, depending on which analogy and which way you want to go, but it it connects so well to how to the fact that you know serotonin is a hibernation hormone. And like I mentioned, the mainstream media presents it as a happy hormone. SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they actually, contrary to that, it's a stress hormone. It's the yang to the dopamine, which is the yin. So dopamine is the true neurotransmitter of pleasure. And I really learned a lot of this from Lauren De La Cruz on Innate Functional Nutrition on Instagram. She is just awesome. She's really incredible about talking to you from a hormone perspective and serotonin is a hormone in the brain and it's it's incredible. She she does a really good post about this and I'll link to her below. But she says elevated levels of serotonin are linked with health issues such as cardiovascular, respiratory, vision, fibrotic, digestion, immune, blood sugar, obesity, thyroid, anxiety and mood, developmental and learning, behavior, neurodegenerative, mental movement, vertigo, libido, fertility and aging. She says serotonin is a hormone of hibernation and simple survival. Hence, it is putting us in a stressed state. It elevates cortisol and it has a very close relationship with iron. And a little bit about iron. She says in an iron-laden body, the copper proteins that neutralize and keep serotonin in check are overwhelmed and they can't do their job. Serotonin increases and so do stress hormones like cortisol, which release free fatty acids from the tissue, which are the PUFAs, but it it just screws up the whole energy production of the body and the metabolism. So serotonin increases stress hormone production. In Oxford Journal's Integrative and Comparative Biology, hibernating bears, serotonin is highest before hibernation because they're going into a long-ass sleep. And they need fat on their body. They need a slow metabolism so they don't starve. And it just brings me back to the feeling of how it felt like I just laid on a couch, put this blanket over me, spiritually, emotionally, mentally in so many ways, and woke up six years later, 60 pounds heavier and not feeling like I'm in touch with what I'm meant to do and what I love to do, which is create and chat. One last thing I'll say is from Dr. Joanna Moncrief, if I'm saying her name correctly, but she is really big in this space of kind of unveiling SSRIs and pharmaceutical drugs to treat mental illnesses. She says, the idea that these medications correct an imbalance that has something to do with, brain, with a brain chemical has been so universally accepted that no one bothers to question it or even research it using modern rigors of science. We have been led to believe that these medications have disease-based effects, that they're actually fixing, curing, correcting a real disease in human physiology. 
Six, deca six decades of study, however, have revealed conflicting, confusing, and inconclusive. So that's a little discouraging. She also, I will link to this as well, but she also talks about antidepressant withdrawal from a very disturbing angle. She says that antidepressant withdrawal is actually very similar to withdrawal from benzodiazepines, which are extremely, extremely addictive and debilitating psychotropic drugs. Just take a Google, if you would like, to see people, forums of thousands and thousands of people of trying to taper off benzos, doing increments of half milligrams that they're shaving off of their pills in order not to risk getting akathisia, which if you are familiar with the very famous philosopher Jordan Peterson, he last year or the year before was hospitalized and put in an induced coma due to akathisia from benzodiazepine withdrawal. Another interesting piece is there was never any what is called informed consent. Again, no doctor that has ever given me a prescription to these drugs had ever told me, hey, do you know that this drug is habit-forming? Do you know that you cannot just stop this drug when you want to? That there is a slow and somewhat intense slash grueling tapering process? Hey, did you know that this drug is more addictive to the brain than opiates. Did you know this drug is going to cause weight gain? An average of 10 pounds per year that you take it. Hey, did you know that if you stop this drug abruptly, you could die? No one ever told me those things. I'm not angry because I know it was never malicious. It's that a lot of the doctors don't know these things. They're just kind of told the same thing. They kind of believe in the low serotonin chemical imbalance theories. A lot of them don't know how to taper a patient off of antidepressants. So it leaves people to their own devices. There are actually many people who have been very vocal about informed consent within the medical community around psychotropic drugs. Dr. Kelly Brogan is one of them. I will try to list the others in the show notes. Uh, Michaela Peterson, who's Jordan Peterson's daughter, she had people on her podcast. She also took SSRIs for, I think, 15 years. She started, I think, when she was 11 years old. And then her father almost died from benzodiazepine use, and he was advised from his family doctor that it would just be fine. He, he was just having problems sleeping, and so he was taking it as kind of a sleeping sedative. This is very common with lorazepam as well. People get prescribed it for sleep, can't come off it, develop akathisia, and the amount of death by suicide cases from benzodiazepine is, it is unbelievable. And Kelly Brogan has on her website, I will link below, a very interesting informed consent form that she kind of uh, she, she posts it on her site as kind of what doctors should be proposing when they are 
prescribing medication to their patients. This was actually created by Dr. David Cohen and Dr. David Jacobs. But Kelly Brogan hosts it on her site. And I'll read you one little piece of it. And it says, I'm aware that although medical opinion may now hold that a chemical imbalance or a brain abnormality or some physical problem produces my distress or suffering, no subjective information concerning the state of my body and mind has been obtained in order to arrive at a DSM diagnosis. I have been informed that the drug or drugs which my doctor is prescribing me cannot cure whatever illness or chemical imbalance medical opinion might believe I have, but can only affect symptoms of my distress or suffering. I realize that FDA approval of the drug I'm about to take is based upon very short-term studies, six to eight weeks, which are designed, paid for, and supervised by the drug's manufacturer. I further realize that the FDA does not require or expect that a drug's full range of adverse effects will be known prior to marketing and prior to lengthy exposure of ordinary patients. I understand that no body of research clearly shows that the problems my diagnosis or diagnoses require or respond more favorably to drug treatment than to one or more forms of non-drug treatment. So informed consent is imperative. It's the change that we need to see within the medical community. When doctors are prescribing patients drugs that we really don't know anything about except through commercials and promoted theories of chemical imbalances and low serotonin. We need doctors to take responsibility and offer us more information and really have us understand what we're taking. Because as someone told me once in a YouTube comment when I was defending the use of drugs, they wrote, a drug is a drug is a drug. We need to know about them. And that can only happen through informed consent. Thank you again so much for listening. I hope that this episode was helpful or at least thought provoking. And remember, you can reach out to me anytime through email or on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you. And I've already loved connecting with so many of you. The third and last episode in this series will talk about the withdrawal process, what it's been like for me and what I've learned from other people and from research. I'll also talk about what Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez calls parasympathetic dominance. And finally, I'll talk about supplements and food and the main connection I found through the body and the mind is through what we consume. I spent pretty much a decade thinking that it didn't matter, but spoiler alert, it does. So thank you again for joining me in Guest House. Until next time.